Morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to wrap up this wonderful uh, little book in the Old Testament. If this is your first time with us, uh, if you, or if you missed the last three chapters, it's okay. I'm going to catch you up on the entire book leading up to chapter 4 in a, uh, in a couple minutes, and so you won't be uh, missing out. Um, but really, you could, just, you could just read Ruth chapter 4 and pretty much get the whole gist of the book, which is fun. Saving the best for last. Uh, and that's what we're going to do today as we wrap this up. Um, next Sunday is actually our four-year anniversary as a, as a church, as Reality Santa Barbara. That's fun, right? So, yeah, praise God. <clears throat> so we're going to get together, open up the word uh, to a specific passage to remember what Christ has done in our midst and especially to look forward to and in anticipation of what he's going to do in each of our lives uh, together. And so that's going to be um, really excited about that. But today we finish Ruth chapter 2. And to just give you a little recap about what's going on, Ruth is just a tremendous love story. But it's not simply a love story between a, a, a man and a woman, although it certainly is that. It's a love story about God, his chesed love, his kind a covenant, deep, heavenly love for his people. What we saw in chapter one was it opened up with basically the worst situation possible, right? It opens up with a Jewish family in Bethlehem. There's a famine in the land. They leave Bethlehem for Moab, which, is a, which was an enemy uh, of, a, of the, the country or the nation of Israel. They leave for Moab, and little by little, men start dying. It starts with Naomi's husband, uh, Elimelech. Shortly after, her, uh, her sons pick up some wives that are Moabites, and right after that, before they have kids, the sons die. And so within a few verses, this book starts with a very discouraging, desperate story in a, in a time and in a place where men had a lot of power, where family was your source of security, Naomi was left without any of that. No man, the only thing that she had, uh, being uh, in the midst of a famine, away from her home country, widowed, a foreigner, vulnerable and hopeless, to top it off, her only living relative was a widowed Moabitess, an enemy of Israel named Ruth, and yet God's faithfulness still begins to surface in these scenes of hopelessness. And we begin to see this, right? in chapter 2, as what surfaces in chapter 2 is God's uncanny ability to work situations for his ultimate purpose. Sometimes they're the mundane and the ordinary. We don't really see uh, what we might term supernatural, but he's working behind the scenes. He's also working in the midst of our suffering. He's working in the midst of our drama. He's working always. As Colossians says, uh, Christ holds the universe, everything, every molecule together by the word of his power. And he's orchestrating everything, even including history, for his glory, for his purpose, and for the good of his people. And in this case, what it looked like, what that good looked like, was Ruth uh, just begins one day to glean in a field which just happens to belong to this guy named Boaz, who just happens to be a follower of God, who just happens to be related to Naomi, which means there's this connection to security again. It just happens to happen. That is a a sarcastic way of the author saying, it didn't just happen. It's God. He's working things together. 
we see in chapter three, we saw last week in chapter three that Naomi used that opportunity, God moving in people's lives, moving behind the scenes. She uses this opportunity, concocts a plan for Ruth to win Boaz's hand in marriage, uh, and the plan works in part because of Naomi, in part because of the great grace of God, but also because of Ruth's daring capacity to push the envelope a little bit. And so God's grace, his redemptive power is moving, and it's causing people to step out of their comfort zone. It's causing them to risk a little bit. It's causing them to step out in faith, and that's what Naomi does. That's what Ruth does, and it leaves Boaz stunned out of his mind. Not just because this beautiful woman has chosen him over all the other young guys, but because he can't help but see in her motives that she's wanting to regard Naomi's concern. She's concerned with Naomi and not just with herself. And so Boaz seeks to become what's called the family redeemer, a a particular person in these uh, clans of families in in the ancient Near East where God... uh, in his people, he calls these family redeemers that have a specific obligation to watch out for people that are in need, and specifically to perpetuate their family line. So if you're a widow, he calls on these family redeemers to marry that widow, to give them kids that would uh, keep their family from, from extinction. And that's where we end. And yet, chapter three closes with a little bit of attention. Boaz says, I want to redeem you, Ruth. I want to redeem you, Naomi. But there is a closer relative to you. I got to check and see with him if he wants to do this. And that's where chapter three ends. And that's where we pick up in chapter four in a very glorious passage. And there's 22 verses. But right now, I'm just going to read, uh, I'm just going to read the first few verses And what we're going to find in chapter 4 is how redemption answers the deepest places of our shame. And what Ruth 4 is going to do is it's going to reveal what that redemption looks like. We're going to look at it in three ways. I believe Ruth 4 shows us the grip of shame. It shows us the power of redemption. And then it shows us the ultimate redemption. That redemption that's not just for Ruth, not just for Boaz, but for me and for you. So I'm going to start... um, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, obviously, and end in verse 6, and then we'll just take it uh, chunk by chunk. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of who Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So he's speaking to that potential a family redeemer right now, verse two. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you uh, about that situation and say, but in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, please tell me so that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Verse six, then the redeemer said, oh, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This is the word of the Lord. We'll cover the rest as we go. 
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's so good to be in the presence of our God today, worshiping through song, through our giving, through our speaking, through our uh, fellowship, and of course, through the opening up of your word. God, we pray that you would provide for us a feast, that the bread of life, which is the scriptures, would be opened up to us, our hearts would be opened up to respond, and by respond, I mean to to digest and feast and eat the words of God. I pray that as the psalmist would, would say in just a fit of poetry that your word is like honey upon our lips, that we would not just see it with our eyes, but that we would taste it with our, our spiritual mouths, that it truly would be so good for our souls to hear you speak to us today. And we thank you that you have not stopped speaking You've not stopped speaking as you spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as you spoke in the midst of Ruth, Ruth's situation, as you spoke to King David and to Samuel and to the prophets and so on and so forth and to the apostles. Thank you that you still speak to us today and may our ears be open to listen to what God has to say to his church. Thank you that a word from the Lord could change our lives forever. And we pray that a word from the Lord would change us today. Thank you that even now, before you speak, we're already under the grace and mercy of our God. How many times have we failed last night, the day before, this morning? How many times have we sinned against you in things that we have done and things that we have left undone, things that we have spoken and things that we have left unspoken? We are, at the end of the day, sinners, And God, you have not treated us the way that our sins deserve. I pray that your kindness today would draw us to repentance and that we would see in you, Lord, not an angry God who wants to destroy, but a loving God who wants to redeem. We pray that we would see in that hand of your redemption, because of that sin, because of your holiness, the true cost of what redemption entails. And I pray that at the end of this service, at the end of our time of worship, we would be on our knees and faces knowing what you have paid to bring sinners close to a holy God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This is a story of redemption. And if you didn't see redemption in the first three chapters, you're gonna see it all over chapter four can't speak through Ruth chapter 4 without some vignette of redemption coming out. But before we speak about redemption, uh, to put it in the words of the poet Frederick Buchner, the gospel is only good news when it starts off as bad news. You only realize how good it is when you see how bad your situation is. And of course, Ruth chapter 4 reminds us of how bad it really is. And what it's like to be in the grip of shame. Perhaps you are in the grip of shame yourself today. I want you to step into the the shoes and into the footsteps of what Ruth must have felt like in her own situation. Perhaps that will resonate with you today. But we just read the first six verses that really is rehashing uh, some of the things that were going on. And if I could explain and rephrase it in a few sentences, as I explained before... Boaz is on a mission to redeem this family, their land, which they lost. 
uh, their family, which they lost, uh, and uh, to get a bride out of all of that as well, and to pull this family back into some sense of security. He is a family redeemer. He is a family redeemer, but there's actually one which is close, more closely related, so he has an obligation to go ask that person. Ruth actually doesn't, the author of Ruth doesn't even name this person, which should give you a hint about his importance. This guy's kind of a schmuck, I guess. And so, uh, I don't think that's a bad word. I hope it's not. Sorry. So, I'll look it up in the dictionary later. And apologize on social media the day after if need be. I think it just means he's a bad dude. I'm going to go with that. But, uh. Boaz approaches this guy, is nameless, and so I'm just going to call him the guy, okay? He's the guy. Comes up to the guy, and he says, hey, blah, 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 this and that, I'm here, and that's where we're at. Do you want to redeem uh, this land for yourself? And so the guy says, absolutely, I want to redeem the land. He's going to sacrifice. Essentially, what Boaz is asking is a number of things. One, first and foremost, do you want to buy back the land that uh, Naomi's family lost when they left Bethlehem? This would require him going into debt to get this land back, but at least he has some land. uh, The guy says and responds, yeah, I'm going to do that. And so he's, he's on board. But then Boaz starts to paint a more full picture of what redemption would look like. He says, see, it's not just buying back the land and going into debt, although that would be costly enough, but you also need to, uh, you also need to marry into this family to redeem them because they're widowed. So it's not just going into debt to buy back this land, but it's also marrying into the family to perpetuate their line. Now, the plot actually thickens a little bit because Naomi is a little too, uh, she's a little beyond childbearing years. She can't bear children. So this would require the guy to marry Ruth, who, as we know by now, is a Moabitess. And Israelites had no dealings with Moabitesses. And so what Boaz is asking the guy to do is to risk everything to save this group of people without any return to himself, without any regard for himself. There's almost nothing that he gets in return out of this except, you know, maybe a a feel-good sense of of well-being. And his response, even though just seconds earlier was, I will do it for the land. Oh, but you got also have to marry into the family and save this woman. Her name is Naomi by marrying Ruth, who is a Moabitess, to have children. Here's the third thing that would, it would entail is to perpetuate the line, which meant that the guy had to marry Ruth and they would have kids, but they wouldn't be his kids. They would be Elimelech's kids from chapter one, the husband who died. So he would essentially be marrying into this family, giving them everything, having kids in a, a time and in an, a, uh, in an age and in a place where kids were everything. The name was perpetuated. The security of the family was perpetuated through the children. And so he was essentially giving that all up so that Elimelech's line would get everything. His next response, oh, I can't do that. My inheritance is at stake. You do it, Boaz. Already out of the gate, we see the grip of shame that must have been felt by, this, by not only Naomi, but especially by Ruth. That everywhere she goes, being a widow, being a Moabitess, everywhere she goes, being a poor Moabitess at, at that, she is constantly being faced with her past, with her present, 
with her sense of worthlessness, with her struggle, with her shame. Everywhere she goes, even the person that God had placed in her trajectory who was supposed to be there to save her didn't want to have anything to do with her. He found the land more valuable than her. Can't imagine what she felt at this point, even though there were glimpses of God's redemption here and there, constantly being faced with her own shame. The guy failed to step up to the plate, due really, at the end of the day, to his own selfishness. I care more about my own security than hers, even though God is specifically calling me to this. Uh, this law that was uh, in place act- by God uh, actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it's called leveret marriage. What Ruth was hoping to get pulled into was leveret marriage, where if you were widowed and you had no chance of survival because you had no kids, someone from your clan, a, a grouping of families, could marry you, as I was explaining earlier, and give you kids that could eventually support you and, and keep you protected and safe. Now, there's actually an, a, a, a place in that chapter, I'm just going to read it from Deuteronomy chapter 25, where that that kinsman redeemer can actually refuse to do it if he's, if he's lame, if he's awful, if he's selfish, if he's a failure. And it actually says in Deuteronomy 25, 9, if that happens, the elders of the city shall call the guy, speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what if we did that? That would be, don't do that, but... It's cultural. This was basically a cultural, ancient, Near Eastern, symbolic thing. It was, it was very shaming to the other person. If the kinsman redeemer did not want to live up to his responsibilities, uh, we don't really understand that, but it might be uh, you know, tantamount to a slap in the face and like a public rebuke or something. Uh, and then it goes on to say, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. You have failed. Uh, interesting, I don't know if Ruth does this. Uh, I don't even know if she's there on the scene, but it, it's not recorded, so she, she may not have done that. And yet, we see in Deuteronomy the shame that's involved with being rejected because of who you are. People fail us. People fail us for a variety of reasons. One of them is because we're pretty into ourselves, aren't we? We're into ourselves, and no matter how many times we'd like to say, I'm there for my neighbor, I'm all about community, I'm all about loving other people, at the end of the day, all of us love ourselves to a very high degree. Or maybe I should say the majority of us. We're selfish. Lest I impair my own inheritance. We will be willing, most of us are willing, I think, to go leaps and bounds for other people until perhaps it starts to dig into our own inheritance, whatever that inheritance might be, our, our convenience, our comfort, our security, our time, our space. People don't just fail us, systems fail us. The environments in which we are a part of, that are a part of us, the cultural environments, they fail us. Sometimes they're cruel and unjust and we live perhaps as victims of that. So perhaps you're listening to all of this talk about redemption, but at the end of the day, you can also say, yeah, I can resonate with that. We may have a hard time getting up because we've been pushed down so many times by ridicule, by shame, by rejection, 
that it's just kind of hard to get up. And this is different. You know, when we were talking about Ruth chapter 2, we were speaking about the impoverished and the poor. It's one of the biggest differences between the very poor, the impoverished, and just about everybody else is that it's not only material poverty that they're dealing with, although it certainly includes that. It's also a lot of spiritual, psychological, and emotional poverty. If you speak to someone who is deeply impoverished, it's not just that they can't put food on the table, but it's that they feel rejected, embarrassed, humiliated, alone. And when all of those things come together, it is like a cannonball pushing people down. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe that is part of your, your story. I just looked up schmuck in the dictionary, and it just means an obnoxious, contemptible person. I had to do that. <laughs> I've accidentally said some bad things, and I don't want to do that, so I'm good. I want you, as we go through uh, Ruth chapter 4, to have that question in mind. Have you ever been pushed down? Of course you have. (laughs) Have you ever been pushed down so many times that you have a hard time getting up? Even when people tell you, get up. (laughs) Just get back up and keep trying. (laughs) Just be a better Christian. Just try harder. Just don't be so down. You ever feel yourself getting frustrated because you are trying harder? But every time you try, it's as if you're losing a piece of your soul. I want to introduce to those of you who feel like you are caught in the grip of shame. It's not that you have bad motives or intentions. It's not that you're not trying hard enough. It's that you're caught in this cycle of shame. I want to introduce to those of you who are caught in the grip of shame the power of redemption, which is the only way that you're ever going to get out but you can get out. Vignettes, you know, in in Ruth, we've never gotten a definition of what redemption is. You can look up a definition, you can get it in different letters, maybe by Paul. In Ruth, you don't get that because it's a story. And you get, instead of definitions, you get get, uh, images, you get scenes, you get little vignettes of redemption in each person's life. And in chapter four, you see it in specifically in two people. You see it in how people are transformed by redemption, and you see how uh, people are used to transform others in redemption, and through that, you get this window into what God means when he says, I want to redeem you. This is what it looks like. I want to read the last largest chunk of Ruth chapter four. Let's just read verse seven all the way through verse 17, and just soak this up. Just let it just fall upon you. It says, now... Okay, after the guy rejects Naomi's family, it says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, there's that sandal again, and he gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the peoples, you are the witnesses this day that I have bought from, uh, from the hand of... I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon, uh, Naomi's two sons who also died. 
Verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez and Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then, wom- uh, then the woman's, uh, women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Okay. Vignettes of redemption. There's a lot of stuff here to mine. I'm just going just to just reach out to two people. When, we speak, when I was speaking of vignettes of two people, the first thing that came to mind was obviously Boaz, who wanted to take on the mantle of the family redeemer. I want to redeem you, Ruth, and through you, I want to redeem your whole family. Boaz, unlike the guy who is unnamed, steps in and knowingly sacrifices everything he can for his family. He sacrifices his money. He sacrifices uh, his, his convenience and time. He sacrifices uh, his status in the community, what it would look like to marry a foreigner. He sacrifices uh, his own, uh, uh, I was gonna say he sacrifices his own children. I mean, the ability to have children doesn't sacrifice children. That would be morbid. He, he sacrifices his right and ability to prolong his own line for uh, another family. Does all of this. He's willing in order, uh, in other words, to lose what culture has told him is so dear and treasured. We could boil it down to one thing, Security. In ancient Israel, it was land, it was sons, and a few other things. Those were your, that was your sense of security. Boaz says, this is more important to me. To step into this loving, self-sacrificial act of redemption is more important to me than all of the security in the world. I am willing to lose what makes me comfortable and secure in order to step into what God is calling me into. This is what the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, refers to as chesed love. I say that because there's so many different forms of love in our day and age. This one refers to the kindness and benevolence and self-sacrificial concern of God for people who don't deserve it. This is what Boaz is stepping into. And it's costly. But... Boaz, the obvious one, isn't the only redeemer in the scene. In a twist of the story, Ruth actually starts to take on a redemptive flavor herself. The very one who needed redemption is now walking in redemption and spreading redemption to other people around her. Redemption is contagious. It's infectious. You experience it and it starts to fall out into other people around you. Ruth was the person who needed the most help in the entire story. 
Even Naomi at least had a a heritage with Israel. Naomi was outside the gate. And yet look at how the women of Israel refer to her in verse 15 when they say, he shall be, referring to uh, the child, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law Ruth who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. In a family where nobody ever said such a thing, in a family that was very patriarchal, in an age that was patriarchal, where family was everything, it was your sense of security, it was your future, it was your line, it was your legacy, men were more valued than women, and baby boys were more valuable than baby girls. And in that day and age, the opposite of, what, of, of that narrative was, was said, it was more valuable to have a son than a daughter because of what they were able to do for your sense of security and well-being. And Ruth so magnificently walks in the grace and redemption of God's plan and purpose. And she is so effective. God uses her as such an effective conduit of his grace that she is not, she's a redeemer of sorts. She's not just a victim of the times. She steps into God's redemptive work and so powerful is her presence because of God using her that the women at the end of the chapter uh, refer to her as being more valuable to Naomi than even having seven of her own sons. Uh, We see in this, this, this Ruth just flipping the cultural narrative on its head. It would be similar to in our day and age where we are told that money uh, or uh, uh, comfort or uh, creature comforts or relationships or fill in the blanks are our sources of security to live in such a way that makes it seem like we do not need those things because our source of security is derived from elsewhere. You are flipping the cultural narrative on its head. You're telling people about a different way. This is what we see in Ruth. Boaz isn't just a redeemer. Ruth is a redeemer of sorts. And we see in both of them the self-sacrificial nature, the self-sacrificial love to get back what was lost. Boaz wanted to get a family back that had no future. Ruth wanted to uh, uh, self-sacrificially reach out and save her beloved mother-in-law. Now, at this point, you may say, well, it's hard to get up when you've been pushed down so many times, and that's the truth. Perhaps you've been pushed, just pushed by circumstances, uh, by the economy, by people in your life, by people that are no longer in your life, by the ups and downs and the ebbs uh, ebbs and flows of life. It's hard to get up when you're caught in a swell that does not have your best interests in mind, and perhaps you feel like you just can't even get up. You, you would say to yourself, if I could just get up and get some momentum, I could follow Christ, I could get my life together, I could do good things, but you just can't get up. And yet it is truly amazing how effectively a cycle like that can stop so abruptly when one person self-sacrificially steps into that cycle with you to show you love, and to show you that you are valued, and to show you that you are worthwhile, and to show you that you are able, and that you are worth these many things. A picture of this that immediately comes into my head is Ryan shared in the announcements about Ron and Pinu. Ron, who's been in Thailand for 20 years, as, uh, as Riz was sharing 
just has this call in heart to love on orphans. That is a, uh, the weakest and the most vulnerable people in Thailand. And went over there once and got to see just how he functions and what he does. And he certainly feeds the hungry. He clothes the poor. He houses the homeless. Uh, he rescues people, uh, not only in Thailand, but in Burma, China, Vietnam, and that surrounding area. His, his general focus are kids who are most likely to be preyed upon. These are kids that you might find uh, taken, in, uh, taken by human traffickers, those who would end up on the streets, those who would end up uh, in lives of crime, the impoverished. Now, he doesn't only take care of their material needs. This is what I love about Ron. He doesn't just take care of their material needs, although he does that, as Christ calls us to. But he also, if you were to visit him in Thailand at the orphanage, you see Ron involved in the life of these children. He's involved in their lives, and what is he doing? Well, he's playing soccer with them. He's, he's hanging out with them. He's teaching them trades. He's gardening with them. He's reading them stories. He's singing songs with them. He's doing little things that children need. He's showing them that they are valued against the cultural narrative of their day. He's showing them that they have worth. He's showing them that they are actually loved and they're worthy of love. He is driving these types of messages into their mind. It's not just a handout. It's not just here's you know, a shirt for your back, although that's great. He's also with that providing a different narrative against the culture of the times. He's saying you are worthwhile, you are valuable, you are, uh, you are loved, and you are loved by God. The effect that that has on children, I've seen this with my own eyes, and him being over there for uh, over two decades, you get to see children starting like this and becoming adults. And what happens with those adults? They're going off to college. They're going off to start successful careers. Some of them are staying at the orphanage and they're taking over. They're overseeing, as Ryan shared earlier, orphans loving on other orphans. This changes people. When one person steps into that cycle that you're caught into to show you that you are loved, that you are valuable, that you are worthwhile, it begins to stop that, 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 that crazy cycle of shame an embarrassment that you were caught in. Do you feel pushed down today? Perhaps this is what you need. You need somebody to step into that cycle that you find yourself caught into to show you that you were loved. And you may be asking the same thing. You're like, obviously. But where is that person? Where is Boaz? Where's my Ruth? I'll even take an Obed. I'll take any of those people. Where is that person? to step into my, into my pain. I want to direct your attention, with your Bibles open, to verse 14, where we'll see a hint of an even greater redeemer. In verse 14, it says, the women said to Naomi, as we read, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, okay? You may say, and it says later, may his name be renowned in Israel. You may immediately off the top of your head say it's referring to Boaz. But as the women go on speaking, it seems like they're speaking not about Boaz, but about Obed, the boy that's gonna be born to Ruth. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
speaking of that day of his birth, referring to this boy who was born, this is another redeemer. But, so already we see vignettes of redemption, Boaz, Ruth, Obed, but it doesn't stop there. The plot actually begins to thicken the most in a place that you probably wouldn't expect, in a genealogy. (laughs) How many of you open up your Bibles, you know, during your devos, and you're like, I'm going to read a genealogy today? Genealogy! How many of you have like opened up your one-year Bible reading at the beginning of the, you know, the beginning of the year and you're just so pumped to get into the Bible and you read and all, you're just bombarded with all of these. This guy begot that guy and that guy begot that guy and you're like, why is this even in here? But real estate in the Bible is so valuable. Why that? Like, why not another story of Jesus? Funny story, when I was a kid, I think I was about 10 or 11 years old, grew up in the church, didn't get born again until I was 20, but I grew up in the church, and during Christmas, I, I was a part of this church for a long time, it was a really small church, about 25 people, 30 people or something, and during Christmas, they would have the kids do something you know, for Advent, we'd all memorize, they had us memorize a whole chapter in Matthew for Christmas. All the kids began to memorize Matthew chapter 2, which is the nativity scene, right? And so one by one, these kids, my friends, would get up and they would just launch into this beautiful exposition from memory, uh, not exposition, but uh, memorization, recitation of, of Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came. And on and on, all these people were like, oh, it's so cute. They love G. Oh, this is all great. Well, I think I missed the memo or confused it somehow, which I'm prone to do on occasion. I went ahead and memorized Matthew chapter 1, which is awesome because for 17 verses, it's just a genealogy. And I thought that was what I was supposed to do. It didn't make any sense to, uh, to me, but I did it because that's what I was told to do. And I rode up there to the stage and I was like, Chris Lazo, everybody. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, those brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, and Tamar, and Perez, and Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, and so on and so forth. That's just three verses. I did 17 from memory. And nobody understood what was going on, but they did exactly what you're doing right now. Oh, it's so cute. And it just forced me after that to be like, why are the genealogies in there? (laughs) Here's why they're in there. A genealogy, and I hope this changes the way you see them from now on. A genealogy is there to connect you from one person to another. It's to show you the origins of a certain person on the scene. What we're seeing right now, I want to read, and you can see the connection yourself. It's connecting the first person to the last person. Verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. This is the family. uh, uh, Well, I'll just read it. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Okay? Everybody knows that guy. The book of Ruth is ending on this scene. It's trying to connect you, or rather, it's trying to make a connection in your mind from Ruth to King David. Okay? In fact, the, whole, uh, the reason Ruth is situated where it is is for a specific reason. It's right after Judges and it's right before First and Second Samuel. 
If you've ever read Judges, you might have gotten through it a little depressed because it is one of the most heartbreaking books in the whole Bible. It's immediately after Joshua, which is one of the most victorious books of the Bible, where Israel, through the leadership of Joshua, takes all the land that God promises them. There's no uh, human leadership, so to speak, because God is their king. It's a theocracy, and yet they rebel against him. We find ourselves coming out of that into Judges, and the first thing that we're told in chapter uh, 2 of Judges is, there arose a generation after Joshua that did not know the Lord. And what you read for the remainder of Judges is some of the most despicable, depraved, heartbreaking stuff that humanity is capable of doing. Everything from sexual assault to deep racism and uh, racial prejudice to murder uh, to backbiting to all sorts of different things. This is what it looks like for a society to not know God. And Ruth comes in on the scene in the context of Judges as like this little beacon of hope a little diamond in the rough to show us there is coming another king. Samuel comes in on the scene. Samuel the prophet talks about a king to come. Saul is the first king. He's kind of a bad one, does some good things, but overall he's pretty bad because his heart does not follow the Lord. Another king comes in on the scene. His name is David. He does some pretty awful things too. He uh, uh, commits adultery and murders, and yet God loves him because his heart is fully devoted to God. And so Ruth functions as a a piece of glue, bringing you, uh, bringing judges and the depravity of what it means to not be under the rule of a good king, and it ties it into a book about what it looks like to be under the rule of a good king, and those three function together. And yet, David is still not the best king. He messes up, he's unfaithful in various ways, but embedded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, is a promise of a better David. When David wanted to uh, build the temple, he got rejected by the Lord, and the Lord makes a covenant with him, often called the Davidic covenant, and it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and, uh, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And stop right there. Who's he speaking about? Well, in the first line, he's speaking about Solomon, right? He shall build a house for my name. Solomon builds the line, uh, builds the temple. But in the next line, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's not speaking about Solomon. If you read 1 Kings chapter 10, you see Solomon reigning in glory. Israel is at the top of the pinnacle of history that they've never, ever been able to go back to and achieve. And yet, right in chapter 11, everything falls apart as soon as Solomon starts marrying, you know, whatever it is, 700 wives and 300 concubines, all of whom have their false gods, and they draw his heart away from the Lord. And like a hinge between 1 Kings 10 and 1 Kings 11, everything falls apart. His kingdom is not established, and yet we see this promise. It must be someone who comes later in David's line. As the prophets begin to write, we see this king being alluded to. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. I'll just, I'll just go ahead and read this to you. It says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There are all these connections to David. It's that promise. It's being stirred in the hearts of God's people. Later, as we get to Matthew chapter 1, God has been silent before his people for 400 years. All of a sudden, this guy named Jesus pops in on the scene. And what's told about him? Well, we get it in a genealogy. Matthew starts with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, making a statement, this guy is connected to, the, to, to King David, as was promised. Later on in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 31, we see it all over the Gospels, this constant connection between Jesus and King David. Chapter 1, verse 31 and 33 it says this, uh, when the, uh, Gabriel saw Mary and he makes his promise to her, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor and favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will, be no, uh, will have no end. Oh, this promise was not meant for Solomon people. It was meant for Jesus Christ. Later in Acts chapter 13 verse 22, even as Paul is preaching the gospel uh, in court, uh, listen to some of the things that he says. Acts chapter 13 verse 22 through 23, when he had... uh, Uh, And when he had been removed, Saul had been removed, God raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will also do my will. Of this man's offspring, God had brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Later, when Paul writes his exquisite letter to the Romans, what's the first thing that he says to start off his argument? Except for this, I am Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his apostles and the holy scriptures concerning his son who is a descendant from David. Over and over and over from Ruth, actually before Ruth, all the way into the New Testament, we're being drawn into this connection between Jesus and David. Why, 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 why? Why doesn't the Bible just open up in the New Testament with here's Jesus? Because of God's promise for an ultimate and greater king. Not simply, not merely a king like David. Not merely a redeemer like Boaz. Not just another person to come along to prophesy. Not a mere human. A greater and more ultimate king. A greater prince. A greater husband. A greater redeemer. A greater priest. A greater temple. A greater glory. A greater everything. Everything about this argument is weaving together this panoramic scene that there's something coming that's greater than what was before. Ruth didn't even know what was coming. She thought she was just going to get a job and a kid and save Naomi. She has no stinking idea that God is using her to save the world. Isn't that interesting? We find ourselves in places of suffering Concerned for our well-being, and God is concerned for our well-being, but he uses even the mundane, even the suffering in our lives to change so much around us. 
there is coming a better redeemer. His name is Jesus, and he came already. Jesus is the one who steps into our cycle of shame. He effectively stops our cycle of shame by showing us the redemptive love of God. He takes us back. He purchases us from the realms of sin and Satan. This is the story of Ruth. It's not be more like Boaz. It's not be like Ruth. It's not don't be like the guy. The story of Ruth is Jesus is coming. And he, like Obed, except in a better way, would be born in Bethlehem and would become renowned in all of Israel. It's Jesus came. And unlike the guy, he did not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, as Paul would say in Philippians. It's Jesus, like Ruth, like a better Ruth, was despised outside of the gate. And yet, like a better Boaz, would sacrifice everything he has to give us everything that belonged to him. Jesus, therefore, unlike any before him, was chosen to redeem the world as its rightful king. That was part of the basis for our, uh, the graphic that we used for the series, the story of God. Uh, I don't know if we have, oh, there it is right there. This was done by a, a, a guy who actually here now, Peter, painted this. The original is out in the foyer. You should check it out. It's an ink wash. It's beautiful. And there was a reason for why we chose this woman for this picture. One, uh, as we were trying to find a, a model to determine the painting on, we we decided on a woman by the name of Rania, Queen Rania. Queen Rania is currently the queen of Jordan. If you know where Jordan is in the Middle East, it's a little off to the side of Israel on the east of the Jordan River, of course. Uh, And Jordan is a, a, a lot bigger, but it occupies the area which would have been ancient Moab, okay? Now, it's not, she's not... Uh, Queen Rania isn't a Moabitess. She's a Jordanian, okay? Uh, it would be this, you know, we wouldn't call someone who lives in Rome Romans. We'd call them Italians, I think. Uh, so I wouldn't call her a Moabitess, but the closest we could get to someone like that. And so we modeled the picture after her to show that kind of quiet strength, that resolve just in her eyes, just capturing, trying our best, uh, uh, Peter, trying to, his best to capture that, and I think he did a wonderful job. But there is a, a discrepancy, There is a disconnect in that Rania is royalty. She's a queen. Ruth is not. Ruth was the poorest of the poor. She was an outcast and a foreigner deeply embedded in poverty. Why use a woman of royalty to depict a woman of poverty? And this is the reason. Because what the genealogies teach us is that even though Ruth was at the bottom of the social economical ladder, royalty came looking for her. Royalty has a way of coming to find people who know God. For all of those who are found in Christ, the royalty of heaven tries to find you. No matter what your life looks like or where you've been, the kingdom of heaven is just aching to wrap its arms around you. Ruth was not born into or married into a royal family. Royalty came looking for her. This is the story of all who know King Jesus in such a way. 
King Jesus is the one who brings the poor and the powerless and the destitute, the hungry, the lonely, the weak, the weary, not just from Moab, but from all over the world, all the tribes and nations, among every nation, redeeming all who trust in him from the bondage to sin and shame, grafting them into his newly formed family, giving them his royal inheritance, calling them sons and daughters of the true king of kings. Can you imagine what Naomi must have felt like on the closing of this scene. She who came back into Bethlehem from Moab saying, don't call me Naomi, which means, uh, uh, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, for that means I am bitter and I truly am bitter. Can you imagine what her life must have felt like at this moment? No longer is God bitter towards me. I can see that now. He works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I imagine what might have been going through her mind at this time is maybe similar to what Paul would say later at the close of Romans. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who can be his counselor? He knows what he's doing and he does it all from a place of love. I want to invite you at this point to recognize that this is not simply a handout. This is not simply God giving you some pocket change or a shirt on your back. It's a purchasing and a buying back. That means you don't belong to yourself anymore. So while, yes, you're saved from slavery and bondage and shame, you are saved to a greater master. As Paul would say, don't you know that you have been bought with a price? You don't belong to yourself anymore. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I want to call you this morning as I uh, invite the worship team up to uh, prepare for a time of worship through song. I want to invite you into a different legacy than the one your surrounding culture has been writing for you. One that is built on merit and proving yourself to be worthy, which is difficult for some of you that have nothing in order to prove that. I want to invite you into a legacy where a king kneels down before you and he says, you are not loved because you're worthy, you are worthy because you are loved. Brothers and sisters, you are loved today by a great king. You are loved today by a great king. You are loved today by a great king. And I pray this morning that for the first time maybe, certainly not the last time, the love of that great king would begin to peel away the scales and the shackles of the shame and the torment that you have been wrestling with. And for the first time, you will know that you have a kinsman redeemer, one who has been called by the Father to come after you when you were weak and could not come after him yourself. We started out in a hopeless situation, but God is able to take hopeless situations and turn them into good things. He's able to take your ashes and turn them into beauty. With this, I want to leave you with one thing. As you press into the presence of God, as you respond to him, however he's putting on your heart, I leave you with this one blessing. The same thing that the women told, Ruth, uh, told Naomi when she returned. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a kinsman redeemer. And may his name be made famous in Santa Barbara.